Chapter 42 of The Ordeal of Richard Feverell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ordeal of Richard Feverell by George Meredith. Chapter 42. Briarius, reddening angrily over the sea, what is that vaporous titan? And Hesper set in his rosy garland, why looks he so implacably sweet? It is that one has left that bright home to go forth and do cloudy work, and he has got a stain with which he dare not return. Far in the west, fair Lucy beckons him to come, ah, heaven, if he might. How strong and fierce the temptation is, how subtle the sleepless desire. It drugs his reason, his honor, for he loves her. She is still the first and only woman to him. Otherwise would this black spot be held to him, otherwise would his limbs be chained while her arms are spread open to him. And if he loves her, why then, what is one fall in the pit, or a thousand? Is not love the password to that beckoning bliss? So may we say, but here is one whose body has been made a temple to him, and it is desecrated. A temple, and desecrated, for what is it fit for, but for a dance of devils? His education has thus wrought him to think. He can blame nothing but his own baseness, but to feel base and accept the bliss that beckons, he has not fallen so low as that. Ah, happy English home, sweet wife, what mad miserable wisp of the fancy led him away from you high in his conceit, poor wretch, that thought to be he of the hundred hands in war against the absolute gods. Jove whispered a light commission to the laughing dame, she met him, and how did he shake Olympus with laughter? Sure, it were better to be Orestes, the furies howling in his ears, than one called to by a heavenly soul from whom he is forever outcast. He is not the oblivion of madness. Clothed in the lights of his first passion, robed in the splendor of old skies, she meets him everywhere. Morning, evening, night, she shines above him, waylays him suddenly in forest depths, drops palpably on his heart. At moments he forgets, he rushes to embrace her, calls her his beloved, and lo, her innocent kiss brings agony of shame to his face. Daily the struggle endured. His father wrote to him, begging him by the love he had for him to return. From that hour, Richard burnt unread all the letters he received. He knew too well how easily he could persuade himself. Words from without might tempt him and quite extinguish the spark of honorable feeling that tortured him and that cl he clung to in desperate self-vindication. To arrest young gentlemen on the downward slope is both a dangerous and thankless office. It is, nevertheless, one that fair women greatly prize and certain of them professionally follow. Lady Judith, as far as her sex would permit, was also of the titans in their battle against the absolute gods, for which purpose, mark you, she had married a lord incapable in all save his acres. Her achievements she kept to her own mind. She did not look happy over them. She met Richard accidentally in Paris. She saw his state. She let him learn that she alone on earth understood him. The consequence was that he was forthwith enrolled in her train. It soothed him to be near a woman. Did she venture her guess as to the cause of his conduct, she blotted it out with a facility women have, and cast on it a melancholy hue he was taught to participate in. She spoke of sorrows, personal sorrows, much as he might speak of his, vaguely, and with self-blame, and she understood him. 
How the dark unfathomed wealth within us gleams to a woman's eye. We are at compound interest immediately, so much richer than we knew, almost as rich as we dreamed. But then the instant we are away from her, we find ourselves bankrupt, beggared. How is that? We do not ask. We hurry to her and bask hungrily in her orbs. The eye must be feminine to be thus creative. I cannot say why. Lady Judith understood Richard, and he, feeling infinitely vile, somehow held to her more feverishly, as one who dreaded the worst in missing her. The spirit must rest. He was weak with what he suffered. Austin found them among the hills of Nassau and Rhineland, titans, male and female, who had not displaced Jove, and were now adrift, prone on floods of sentiment. The blue-flocked peasant swinging behind his oxen of a morning, the gaily kerchiefed fruit woman, the jackass driver, even the doctor of those regions, have done more for their fellows. Horrible reflection. Lady Judith is serene above it, but it frets at Richard when he is out of her shadow. Often wretchedly he watches the young men of his own age trooping to their work, not cloudwork theirs, work solid, unambitious, fruitful. Lady Judith had a nobler in prospect for the hero. He gaped blindfolded for anything, and she gave him the map of Europe in tatters. He swallowed it comfortably. It was an intoxicating cordial. Himself on horseback, overriding wrecks of empires, well might common sense cower with the meaner animals at the picture. Tacitly they agreed to recast the civilized globe. The quality of vapor is to melt and shape itself anew, but it is never the quality of vapor to reassume the same shapes. Briarius, of the hundred unoccupied hands, may turn to a monstrous donkey with his hind legs aloft, or twenty thousand jabbering apes. The phantasmic groupings of the young brain are very like those we see in the skies, and equally the sport of the wind. Lady Judith Blue, there was plenty of vapor in him, and it always revolved into some shape or other. You that mark those clouds of eventide, and no youth, well see the similitude. It will not be strange, it will barely seem foolish to you, that a young man of Richard's age, Richard's education and position, should be in this wild state. Had he not been nursed to believe he was born for great things? Did she not say she was sure of it? And to feel base yet born for better is enough to make one grasp at anything cloudy. Suppose the hero with a game leg. How intense is his faith to quacks? With what a passion of longing is he not seized to break somebody's head? They spoke of Italy in low voices. The time will come, said she, and I shall be ready, said he. What rank was he to take in the liberating army? Captain, colonel, general-in-chief, or simple private? Here, as became him, he was much more positive and specific than she was. Simple private, he said. Yet he saved himself caracoling on horseback. Private in the cavalry, then, of course. Private in the cavalry, overriding wrecks of empires. She looked forth under her brows with mournful indistinctness at that object in the distance. They read Petrarch to get up the necessary fires. Italia mia. Vain indeed was this speaking to those thick and mortal wounds in her fair body, but their sighs went with the Tiber, the Arno, and the Po, and their hands joined. Who has not wept for Italy? 
I see the aspirations of a world arise for her, thick and frequent as the puffs of smoke from cigars of Pannonian centuries. So when Austin came, Richard said he could not leave Lady Judith. Lady Judith said she could not part with him. For his sake, mind, this Richard verified. Perhaps he had reason to be grateful. The high road of folly may have led him from one that terminates worse. He is foolish, God knows. But for my part, I will not laugh at the hero because he has not got his occasion. Meet him when he is, as it were, anointed by his occasion, and he is no laughing matter. Richard felt his safety in this, which, to please the world, we must term folly. Exhalation of vapors was a wholesome process to him, and somebody who gave them shape and hue a beneficent iris. He told Austin plainly he could not leave her, and did not anticipate the day when he could. Why can't you go to your wife, Richard? For a reason you would be the first to approve, Austin. He welcomed Austin with every show of manly tenderness and sadness at heart. Austin he had always associated with his Lucy in that Hesperian palace of the West. Austin waited patiently. Lady Judith's old lord played on all the baths in Nassau without evoking the tune of health. Whithersoever he listed, she changed her abode. So admired a wife was to be pardoned for espousing an old man. She was an enthusiast even in her connubial duties. She had the brows of an enthusiast. With occasion, she might have been a Charlotte Corday. So let her also be shielded from the ban of ridicule. Nonsense of enthusiast is very different from nonsense of ninnies. She was truly a high-minded person, of that order who always do what they see to be right and always have confidence in their optics. She was not unworthy of a young man's admiration if she was unfit to be his guide. She resumed her ancient intimacy with Austin easily, while she preserved her new footing with Richard. She and Austin were not unlike, only Austin never dreamed and had not married an old lord. The three were walking on the bridge at Limburg on the lawn, where the shadow of a stone bishop is thrown by moonlight on the water brawling over slabs of slate. A woman passed them, bearing in her arms a baby whose mighty size drew their attention. What a whopper! Richard laughed. Well, that is a fine fellow, said Austin, but I don't think he's much bigger than your boy. He'll do for a nineteenth-century Arminius, Richard was saying. Then he looked at Austin. What was that you said? Lady Judith asked of Austin. What have I said that deserves to be repeated? Austin counter-queried, quite innocently. Richard has a son. You didn't know it. His modesty goes very far, said Lady Judith, sweeping the shadow of a curtsy to Richard's paternity. Richard's heart throbbed with violence. He looked again in Austin's face. Austin took it so much as a matter of course that he said nothing more on the subject. Well, murmured Lady Judith. When the two men were alone, Richard said in a quick voice, Austin, you were in earnest? You didn't know it, Richard. No. Why, they all wrote to you. Lucy wrote to you, your father, your aunt. I believe Adrian wrote too. I tore up their letters, said Richard. He's a noble fellow, I can tell you. You've nothing to be ashamed of. He'll soon be coming to ask about you. I made sure you knew. No, I never knew. Richard walked away and then said, What is he like? Well, he really is like you, but he has his mother's eyes. And she's... Yes, I think the child has kept her well. They're both at Raynham? Both. 
Hence, fantastic vapors, what are ye to this? Where are the dreams of the hero when he learns he has a child? Nature is taking him to her bosom. She will speak presently. Every domesticated boar in these hills can boast the same, yet marvels the hero at none of his visioned prodigies, as he does when he comes to hear of this most common performance. A father? Richard fixed his eyes as if he were trying to make out the lineaments of his child. Telling Austin he would be back in a few minutes, he sallied into the air and walked on and on. A father, he kept repeating to himself, a child. And though he knew it not, he was striking the keynotes of nature. But he did know of a singular harmony that suddenly burst over his whole being. The moon was surpassingly bright, the summer air heavy and still. He left the high road and pierced into the forest. His walk was rapid. The leaves on the trees brushed his cheeks. The dead leaves heaped in the dells noised to his feet. Something of a religious joy, a strange sacred pleasure, was in him. By degrees at war, he remembered himself, and now he was possessed by a proportionate anguish. A father. He dared never see his child, and he had no longer his fantasies to fall upon. He was utterly bare to his sin. In his troubled mind it seemed to him that Clare looked down on him, Clare who saw him as he was, and that to her eyes it would be infamy for him to go and print his kiss upon his child. Then came stern efforts to command his misery and make the nerves of his face iron. By the log of an ancient tree half-buried in dead leaves of past summers, beside a brook, he halted as one who had reached his journey's end. Then he discovered he had a companion in Lady Judith's little dog. He gave the friendly animal a pat of recognition, and both were silent in the forest silence. It was impossible for Richard to return. His heart was surcharged. He must advance, and on he footed, the little dog following. An oppressive slumber hung about the forest branches. In the dells and on the heights was the same dead heat. Here, where the brook tinkled, it was no cool-lipped sound, but metallic and without the spirit of water. Yonder, in a space of moonlight on lush grass, the beams were as white fire to sight and feeling. No haze spread around. The valleys were clear, defined to the shadows of their verges, the distances sharply distinct, and with the colors of day but slightly softened. Richard beheld a row moving across a slope of sward far out of rifle mark. The breathless silence was significant, yet the moon shone in a broad blue heaven. Tongue out of mouth trotted the little dog after him, crouched panting when he stopped an instant, rose weariedly when he started afresh. Now and then a large white night moth flitted through the dusk of the forest. On a barren corner of the wooded highland, looking inland, stood gray, topless ruins set in nettles and rank grass blades. Richard mechanically sat down on the crumbling flints to rest and listened to the panting of the dog. Sprinkled at his feet were emerald lights. Hundreds of glowworms studded the dark, dry ground. He sat and eyed them, thinking not at all. His energies were expended in action. He sat as a part of the ruins and the moon turned his shadow westward from the south. Overhead, as she declined, long ripples of silver cloud were imperceptibly stealing toward her. They were the van of a tempest. He did not observe them or the leaves beginning to chatter. 
When he again pursued his course with his face to the Rhine, a huge mountain appeared to rise sheer over him, and he had it in his mind to scale it. He got no nearer to the base of it for all his vigorous outstepping. The ground began to dip. He lost sight of the sky. Then heavy thunderdrops streaked his cheek. The leaves were singing. The earth breathed. It was black before him and behind. All at once the thunder spoke. The mountain he had marked was bursting over him. Up startled the whole forest in violet fire. He saw the country at the foot of the hills to the bounding Rhine gleam quiver extinguished. Then there were pauses, and the lightning seemed as the eye of heaven, and the thunder as the tongue of heaven, each alternately addressing him, filling him with awful rapture. Alone there, sole human creature among the grandeurs and mysteries of storm, he felt the representative of his kind, and his spirit rose, and marched, and exulted, let it be glory, let it be ruin, Lower down, the lightened abysses of air rolled the wrathful crash. Then white thrusts of light were darted from the sky, and great curving ferns, seen steadfast in pallor a second, were supernaturally agitated and vanished. Then a shrill song roused in the lees in the herbage. Prolonged and louder it sounded, as deeper and heavier the deluge pressed. A mighty force of water satisfied the desire of the earth. Even in this, drenched as he was by the first outpouring, Richard had a savage pleasure. Keeping in motion, he was scarcely conscious of the wet, and the grateful breath of the weeds was refreshing. Suddenly he stopped short, lifting a curious nostril. He fancied he smelt meadowsweet. He had never seen the flower in Rhineland, never thought of it, and it would hardly be met within a forest. He was sure he smelt it fresh in dews. His little companion wagged a miserable, wet tail some way in advance. He went on slowly, thinking indistinctly. After two or three steps, he stooped and stretched out his hand to feel for the flower, having, he knew not why, a strong wish to verify its growth there. Groping about, his hand encountered something warm that started at his touch, and he, with the instinct we have, seized it and lifted it to look at it. The creature was very small, evidently quite young. Richard's eyes, now accustomed to the darkness, were able to discern it for what it was, a tiny leveret, and he supposed that the dog had probably frightened its dam just before he found it. He put the little thing on one hand in his breast and stepped out rapidly as before. The rain was now steady. From every tree a fountain poured. So cool and easy had his mind become that he was speculating on what kind of shelter the birds could find and how the butterflies and moths saved their colored wings from washing. Folded close, they might hang under a leaf, he thought. Lovingly, he looked into the dripping darkness of the coverts on each side as one of their children. He was next musing on a strange sensation he experienced. It ran up one arm with an indescribable thrill but communicated nothing to his heart. It was purely physical, ceased for a time, and recommenced, till he had it all through his blood, wonderfully thrilling. He grew aware that the little thing he carried in his breast was licking his hand there. The small, rough tongue going over and over the palm of his hand produced the strange sensation he felt. Now that he knew the cause, the marvel ended, but now that he knew the cause, his heart was touched and made more of it. The gentle scraping continued without intermission as on he walked. What did it say to him? 
Human tongue could not have said so much just then. A pale gray light on the skirts of the flying tempest displayed the dawn. Richard was walking hurriedly. The green-drenched weeds lay all about in his path, bent thick, and the forest drooped glimmeringly. Impelled as a man who feels a revelation mounting obscurely to his brain, Richard was passing one of those little forest chapels hung with votive wreaths where the peasant halts to kneel and pray. Cold still, in the twilight it stood, raindrops pattering around it. He looked within and saw the virgin holding her child. He moved by. But not many steps had he gone, ere his strength went out of him, and he shuddered. What was it? He asked not. He was in other hands. Vivid as lightning, the spirit of life illumined him. He felt in his heart the cry of his child, his darling's touch. With shut eyes, he saw them both. They drew him from the depths. They led him, a blind and tottering man. And as they led him, he had a sense of purification so sweet, he shuddered again and again. When he looked out from his trance on the breathing world, the small birds hopped and chirped. Warm, fresh sunlight was over all the hills. He was on the edge of the forest, entering a plain clothed with ripe corn under a spacious morning sky. End of chapter 42